Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Nafling. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hello, welcome, and thanks for tuning in. I'm Colt, and I am excited to be here today chatting with Shirley Wu and Nadi Bremer. Ladies, welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Absolutely. Shirley and Nadi are award-winning data visualization freelancers, but I actually feel like when I say those words that it's far too restrictive. Um, <laughs> they each work at this really fun and fascinating space where data meets art and they create visualizations of information that are really an experience. And they've worked with clients like Google News Lab, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, The New York Times, Scientific American, The Guardian, and many more. And together, they have co-authored a beautiful new book, Data Sketches, that was officially published earlier this week. So the first thing I have to do is officially congratulate you both. You built a book. <laughs> Yay, thank you. We've joined the uh, Published Authors uh, Club with you. Well, welcome to the club. Um, <laughs> but it's funny, right? Because you spend all this time and energy for such a long amount of time. And then that period gets over. But it, there's still this big gap between that ending and the physical book existing, right? Which feels really weird. So I know it must feel amazing to have it in your hands and be able to share it with others. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we're going to talk a lot more about data sketches, both the multi-year project that you undertook, as well as the book that grew out of it. And uh, just real quick, for those who are tuning in live, you'll have the opportunity to ask your questions and steer our conversation. You can do that at any point through the chat window. I'll be following along there and incorporating those into our conversation. Uh, first, though, I'd love to help those who are watching and listening who may not be familiar with you and your work get to know you a little better. So I actually thought it would be fun to start with your meet cute. So I don't know if you know this phrase, but meet cute is usually used in the film industry. And it's the charming encounter between two characters. So I think usually it's meant to be a romantic relationship, but I think you can have a meet cute for productive, creative relationships as well. <laughs> so I'd love for you to tell us about how you met each other and maybe through that incorporate a bit about your respective backgrounds. Um, so it was 2016, somewhere in the spring, and there was this data visualization conference happening in Boston called OpenVis, and we were both there because we both were uh, honored to be speakers there, and we had sort of kind of met on the web in a Slack channel, but we hadn't really had like a conversation yet. It was more of this group and there were people there and, and several of the people from that Slack group, they were uh, also going to OpenVis. And so it was sort of posted in that Slack groups like, hey, shall we meet the day before to have some lunch? Uh, you know, and finally get to meet each other in real life. So uh, yeah, we, we uh, I show up at that, that bar and Shirley's there too. And maybe Shirley 
takes over oh, from yeah. here. So this is, I, I guess, the meet cute moment, which is, uh, so that Slack group was actually started in the Bay Area uh, with a lot of the data viz practitioners in the Bay Area. So I think I knew almost everybody in that group except for Nadi. So I think most people in that group knew each other except Nadi because she lives in Amsterdam was kind of, we were all meeting her in person the first time around. And it was a bookstore because it was the after, it was, uh, we were having brunch, not a bar yet. Not not a bar yet. Oh, right. Uh, yes, right. <laughs> but uh, I remember walking into the bookstore um, and then being like, and then finding Nadi and being like, so what you cannot tell from uh, online is that Nadi is extremely tall, like six foot something. <laughs> and so I remember just being like, hello, Nadi. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like the, I think one of the strongest impressions. <laughs> I've had meeting someone in real life and um yeah and then it was really easy to get along with Nadi and then we like kind of spent um that group of friends we like spent the conference like hanging out with with each other yeah Yeah, all right so you've met you're at a conference you had some things in common beforehand because you were part of the same slack channel how how does that grow into a project and what 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 were you each doing at that point in time work-wise uh, so I was, uh, let's see, I was, so I, I'm a graduated astronomer, and then I started working at a consultancy agency as a data scientist. Uh, but after four years, I kind of switched to wanting to do more data visualization. And when OpenVis happened, or right after that, I was working for a, a different company as a, um, a D3 data visualization dashboard creator. Uh, and when we got back home, we, uh, uh, well, we, we started, you know, we remained sort of in contact, but it wasn't until a few weeks later when uh, Shirley started digging into several tutorials that I'd written about the, um, the different examples that had shown in my talk during OpenVis that we really started chatting. And that was also coincidentally the time when the um, Information is Beautiful Awards, when you could send in new things again. And we were just chatting about, hey, what do you, hey, do you have anything to, to nope, send nothing. in? And <laughs> And it was basically the same. <laughs> and and we kind of we kind of um were sad about that. Like, wait, wait, in the last year, have we not found the time to create like some some bigger personal projects that we want to send in? Uh, and that was that was the point when Shirley had this brilliant, brilliant idea. That was the catalyst because uh, I had just finished about two and a half years at a, a startup where it was kind of like one of those, you know, nights and weekends kind of things. And that's why I didn't have uh, the time to work on any projects. And I had just quit uh, to try my hand at freelancing. And that's when I was like, oh, oh, naughty. I have this idea, this kind of crazy idea. Do you want to collaborate on something with me? And um, I actually don't ask this very often because I've uh, been a little bit burned from past collaborations of um, if you're working on something that's like more a personal or side project, that obviously always takes kind of like a second priority to your day job, right? But I think seeing how prolific Nadi was in her side projects, in her tutorials, I was like, oh, maybe this is someone that like I can really do this with. And what I did not know was because uh, because I've always been scared of the other person not being motivated to finish. What I did not know was how much more motivated Nadi <gasps> was to finish everything. And this is why we were able to finish the project and the book. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. One of the first uh, sort of one of these tests that you have to do when you go to these in-house courses for businesses. So after like when I was just done with astronomy, I went to one of them. And the, the first test that I did told me, you are a finisher. You want to finish whatever you start. It doesn't matter how you want to you want to ship it somehow. So that's the perfect personality to team up with, right? If you're yeah. wanting to make progress on something. Okay. Yeah. So, so you get connected. Did you have the idea for what data sketches was going to be when you started off? Or you just said, hey, let's visualize some things together or... Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that it was funny because then um, Nadi was so also so excited about the idea. And we like, really started talking really quickly about it. And I think we actually got the like, uh, idea settled in in less than a day, I think we were like, Oh, we should, you know, have, I think from the very beginning, we were like, we should have like 12 different topics. I don't know why we thought that. Um, <laughs> we were like, for each topic, let's uh, have a phase of data gathering. And let's also have a phase of um so Nadi had the great idea of um having the sketch phase because I uh, as my background is in software engineering and I have this weird thing where like I'm just like I do not need to write anything down everything is in my head and it's gonna get coded out that way that was like my weird younger self <laughs> and but Nadi was like no the sketch part is really important so then we had the sketch phase and then finally we have the code phase and then I think even the like part about let's do a right was a pretty like last minute like hey like maybe some way to differentiate this project um was like we kind of just like last minute slapped that idea on and and all of that happened probably in a few hours and then we took like another week trying to come up with the name <laughs> and so you knew at this point that it's something you were going to put online or did that decision happen later no, it was definitely online always because everything that we create is always uh, web-based and, and online. And although it wasn't our intention to make it into something big, we definitely wanted it to share it, but more with our, our friends, uh, you know, get some feedback on it, have fun, have a, have a you know, build up your portfolio a little bit yeah. along the way, yep. uh, mm -hmm. but mostly to have fun. And, uh, and, then, and then it turned into something a little bigger and then it turned into a book. Okay, so at this point, so you've decided it's going to be online, you've set out some different phases, right? Shirley, you mentioned the sketch phase and the code phase, and then you decided you're going to do the write-ups. Mm -hmm. And so where, where does it go from here? So we, um, we decided that we'd first do two uh, topics, just keeping it all sort of secret, just to see how it would go, to see how the collaboration would go, and, and the ideas that we had. So we started, um, like, I think this was the end of June. And we thought, well, we'll start July 1st and we have topic movies. And, and then we basically went with that. We created, um, we, we thought up our ideas that we wanted to do. I, I settled on the Lord of the Rings and Shirley wants to do something with the blockbusters for every year that she was uh, been alive. Should we show those? Because those are actually some of our smallest, uh, <laughs> most bite-sized projects we've done for data sketches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for those listening, I'm pulling up the datasketch.es, the book website, where if you start scrolling, you can start to see some of the beautiful things. Shirley or Nadi, stop me when I get there. I think this one's yeah, it's all right. the way at the bottom. All the way down oh, okay. because it was our first project. I'm going to scroll slowly <laughs> so yeah, that, that people one, can see. That one. All right. Those two. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that one is Nadi's uh, visualization of all of the lines spoken in Lord of the Rings. I don't know why I'm describing your <laughs> visualization. <Nadi. laughs> sorry, is that are we gonna are we gonna I describe yours and you describe mine? <laughs> sure. Great way um, to do it. Which uh, I 
actually really love. Um, it is, what did you call it? It's kind of like a stretched out chord diagram. And in the middle, we have all of the main characters from Lord of the Rings. And then um, if you hover over them, um, you can see all of the chords that lead out to all of the different locations in Middle Earth that they had dialogue. And I remember one of the stories, sorry, I've, I, I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan so um if i get this wrong i'm sorry but i remember there was like a uh your favorite fact is that boromir who dies uh in the first or second film has more dialogue than legolas in all three films yes. <laughs> and you can see that very clearly in this visualization <laughs> well and this one so i paused on this one in the book as i was looking through because i found it fascinating the so I'll jump in and describe your work now, Nadi. Um, but you start with the sketches, right, of what you thought it was going to look like, and then stepped back, and I'm totally paraphrasing here, but realized like, oh, at the core, this looks like a chord diagram. But then there were all sorts of crazy things you had to do to get the curves just right and like the math behind the scenes, right, to actually get it to render as it does, which is like sort of a chord diagram, but not your standard one, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was... I had this idea for a sketch, but I placed things in the center of the chord diagram. So, and I knew there was no way, in, at least in, in D3, uh, the JavaScript library D3, no way to basically do that. So I had, I, I copied the code that D3 uses and started JavaScript writing and mutating it slowly into what I, what I wanted it to become, which was a fascinating challenge. <laughs> and is that something that you've, just that process, is that something that you've done in other projects as well? More and more. Uh, when I started out, I definitely didn't know enough to be able to even make those changes. And my first like big change that I made was was merely a, a basically a horizontal offset. And then that worked. And then I was, then I had the confidence to make the bigger step. And it's basically been going like that. And now I'm at a point where I'm, I feel much more comfortable going into any kind of sort of data viz code and making adjustments and trying out things. And, and it's been working more and more often just through the experience that I've gathered along the, the last few years. And did you start off to do a background knowing how to program before this? I, so through my astronomy background, I knew how to program in some arcane language that only astronomers use, uh, but it, it, the, sort of the mindset the of logic, for loops, right? yeah, the, to, to think in arrays and these things. Uh, so as a data scientist, I worked a lot in R. I still do a lot in R, uh, but for learning HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, that started with me when I wanted to learn D3, which I think... In 2016, I'd been working with D3 on and off for about three years at, at that point. So, but it was a, it was a struggle at the start, but it was just so amazing what you could do with that tool, make it interactive, make it different than your Excel charts in a way, which I really loved to be able to explore that creativity. Nadia, Ben wants to know what the astronomy language was. IDL. Do you know it? <laughs> <laughs> Surely, do we want to look at film flowers too? Oh, sure, yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's actually one of my my favorites from Shirley. She's so many beautiful ones. I, I love how she's always so out of the box. Uh, <laughs> so with film flowers, uh, Shirley has taken the top five or six—I forgot 
uh, let's say five uh, summer blockbuster movies for every year that she's been alive and every aspect so every every movie is turned into a flower and every aspect of how the flower looks is 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 part of on data so the petal shape is the uh, h rating you know uh, pg or r rated the colors are the different genres but most movies are different genres uh, the number of imdb photos is the number of petals and the size is the actual imdb rating so you get this beautiful sort of grid of flowers uh, that is just very sort of mesmerizing to look at but if you look closely you can see these trends and things going on or just inspect your favorite movie see how it looks but my favorite my favorite is like you know all, a lot of these flowers are really big right like there's guardians of the galaxy um there's uh you know uh gravity and dark knight rises all of them are really big which means that they're really well rated and then you go all the way down to 1997 Spain, and then Spain, look Spain. all the way to the left and there's batman and robin <laughs> tiny. which is so tiny. tiny you can't even see the colors <laughs> so um that's that's personally my favorite flower but um i really loved your point about um uh, all of the iterations that Naughty went through, and I was wondering if it's worth showing the the write up for Naughty for that particular project might be worth for showing. The Lord of the Rings, yeah. And so actually, and then yeah, if you click on write up, and then um, this is the online version that everybody still has access to. And then um, if you get our book instead, uh, there is the much more tightened up version with uh, also kind of has all of the lessons and technical lessons in there too in the book. So yeah, and we'll make sure that we link to all of these things that we're talking about in the show notes too. So people have those for reference to take a look. Yeah, I love seeing the evolution though, right? From the drawings to the chord diagram to where it ends up. Here's a question that came in from Rebecca that I think is relevant here, which is whether you were each artistic as children, right? Did, did, did this, you just always drawn and kept drawing or did you, did the drawing get rekindled at some point? How, how does sketching play into your work? I could at least say a big yes on, on that account for both of us. Uh, I know I know also from Shirley, but we were both uh, very sort of creative as kids. I love to draw. Um, I was, but I was also I I like to do other things such as uh, or more origami based or just weird stuff with paint, doing things in ways <laughs> I wasn't supposed to do. I did kind of drop out of the drawing after my 14th, so my sketching right now is very rough. But for data visualization, you really don't need to be an artist to create good sketches because it's usually just simple curves and circles and rectangles and things like that. So that's fine. It's, um, but that creative side, that was always something that was part of me. And and I only realized I was missing that from data science when I found that data visualization was my passion. And then finally, I felt complete in that sort of being back in that creative side. Oh, yeah. I really love that. Um... And I love your point about how I think it helps to have an art or creative background, but you really don't need it to like sketch out your ideas. I love that point, Nadi. Um, and yeah, because like if you look at our sketches, it's just like really rough. It's just to get our like ideas in our heads down onto paper and then like flesh out those ideas. So you really don't need the art background. But I actually uh, also do have a, I guess, relatively strong art background. Um, I never went to like an art university or anything, but I remember the very first, one of my most 
most memorable first gifts that I got as like a four-year-old was a watercolor set. I don't know whose idea it was to give a four-year-old a watercolor set. Um, and then uh, I drew and painted all the way until I was 18, about to go into university. I took art classes all throughout high school. And I think that's what really helps these days. Of I don't have a formal design background and, or an art background, but um, it really taught me about color theory and about uh, how to think about like perspective and layout and I think that really helps in terms of like the UI UX design of like just even having the um having been trained about like how to lay out your content such that you guide a viewer's eyes throughout the page and then I uh, remember I went to university and I quit cold turkey on uh, anything art related because my mom denies this but she told me that she would not pay my tuition if I took any art classes she denies this now <laughs> But I will not let her live this down. So I was so like, I felt so deprived from the art that I, uh, you know, joined the graphic design club, um, and then still felt really deprived. And then uh, when I got my first job as a front end developer at a big data company, um, I was offered to take a look at D3. And that was when I was like, oh, I'm this makes so much sense to me because growing up, I loved both art and math. And there's such a strong math component to data visualization. And then I grew up to love code. So data viz to me is like a beautiful combination of all three things that I really love. Um, and especially like I'm trying to do more like artistically, like creatively free. Um, that I enjoy so much of like, uh, when I was a kid, I was like, I want to be an artist. And then I kind of gave up on that. And these days, I'm like, Oh, maybe, maybe I can be an artist. But instead of my medium being watercolor, it could be code and data. I love that. I'm going to try to write it down. But I'm going to move on, actually. So I don't write it down. Mm -hmm. We'll catch that. That's an awesome uh, snippet. But uh, so many good questions coming in. By the yeah. way, I'll pull one from Maxine. This is both of you come from science math backgrounds. Do you think this facilitated learning D3? And uh, she's asking whether trigonometry and such that sort of knowledge is necessary for those wanting to learn it. Mm. I think I think definitely in the sense uh, with science, if you have that background, you are more used to working with math and formulas. And I do find that I often work with trig trigonometry uh, if I want to lay out certain things in, in radial uh, coordinates. It's not, it doesn't really get much more complex than that. You don't have to do any differential equations to do data visualization, but you do kind of need to know the sort of the spatial stuff. Uh, but thankfully, that's more of the easy math. I think it's it's more useful on the, uh, at least for me, uh, it's been very useful for the data side because I was, I've been more trained in how to handle and analyze uh, and be statistical about data. Um, so that, that part of data visualization, that was nicer that I, I kind of knew how to wrangle my data and then I could really focus on the design side. Um, so I would say that the science background is really great for doing data visualization, but I've I mean, it doesn't mean that it's bad if you come in from the design side. I would just say that try do try and focus on, you know, ramping up your data wrangling skills, at least so that you know how to handle data uh, properly. Yeah. And I think that because creating a whole data visualization uh, requires so many different skills, like, you know, at the most 
foundational it requires some amount of like Nadi said data wrangling then you need to be able to kind of like have some amount of information design skills then there's like if you do want to make something custom for the web uh, or anywhere custom um, then you need some amount of coding and then like probably most importantly along with the design is like the storytelling so then like I think it like it's not it's not a bad thing to you know lack like when you get into it, uh, you probably are coming from one of those aspects and you might not have all of them. And then, um, and then it's like a slow, as you make more and more visualizations, you can, you can kind of pick up on the rest. So definitely like, um, if you come up from like a non-math and science background, it's just a matter of learning and picking up those skills. And, um, just like Nadi said, uh, it's mostly trig and, uh, stats. And even if like, even in trig, uh, it's kind of like, I think the two that I use the most are like converting from polar coordinates to Euclidean coordinates. Um, so that's just some cosines and signs. And then I think the distance formula, I think those are like the two things that I use Then the distance formula you learn in like middle school. So except for sometimes I'll like peek at Nadi's sketches and there's some like intense math going on and I have no idea what she's doing. <laughs> I'm just like, what, is that an integral? Like what? <laughs> I love it. Uh, I'm going to jump back to a question that was raised when we were looking through some of the movie visuals uh, from Julia, wanting to know more about the tool side of things. So Nadi touched on this a little bit, but what tools do you find yourselves turning to mm. to create some of the projects that we're seeing? Yeah, so uh, for me, um, I think... Uh, and I'm going to preface this by saying um, my background comes from the software engineering side. And that's so that's that's how my tools are a little bit biased from that. And so for me personally, on the data side, I've never used R, so I don't use R. And instead, I use JavaScript. <laughs> I, I tried to I tried to get into Python and the context switching between JavaScript and Python was so intense for me that I was like, I might as well, like, it's faster for me to just do JavaScript. Um, <laughs> and so I like do all of my data collection and gathering other than the manual entry ones uh, with JavaScript, usually with Node. And then I use for data cleaning, uh, still JavaScript and Excel spreadsheets. When I go into data exploration, I use uh, observable notebooks to kind of help me kind of like organize my exploration, as well as a uh, JavaScript-based charting library called Vega Lite. And that one kind of helps me just really quickly put the data into some simple charts to for me to get an idea, just because my stats is kind of weak. So I tend to explore things, the data better visually. And then uh, finally, I uh, usually sketch with my iPad in a program called Paper 53. And I finish uh, with code uh, with both D3 and other JavaScript libraries, usually um, recently, I've, or last few years, I've really enjoyed a JavaScript like library called Vue that helps me manage kind of like state and data changes um, and Greenstock for animation. So that's kind of like my typical set of tools. And I do want to say that in our book, we have a whole section where we go into great detail about the tech and tools that we use. Nadia, anything to add there? Um, so yeah, I, I use a, a different slice uh, of tools, uh, but, but by the way, our book is very tool agnostic in that sense. It's more about conveying the mindset of how we start from scratch and go through it. So there's barely any line of any kind of code in there, only in a few technical lessons, but that's why we set them apart. Uh, but yeah, so 
I always do uh, data prep and data analysis in R. I like to there get a sense and sort of build up my own mental model of what how, what's in the data set, what, what are the stories, what are the distributions. I make hundreds of very basic and ugly plots, uh, the bar charts, the histograms. I, I don't mean they're ugly charts. I mean, they, they look like they're just default stuff. Um, then once I have sort of this, this idea of like, okay, this is what I, what I want to tell, I, again, in our reconstruct my data set to what I will need to make it visual. Then I, I jump over to D3 as well, uh, like Shirley. Uh, but for me, it's very vanilla. I, I hardly ever put anything else inside that. So it's really just HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and D3. Uh, I build it up there, lots of testing. And then even if, if it's a static thing, I might actually take it back into uh, Illustrator or Affinity Designer uh, to really make those final fine tunings that are quite hard to program, such as legends, uh, and, and then do it over there and then finish the piece off. But if it's on the web, and then sort of that second part is where it stays. And let me add in, a, sorry, a quick aside of I always wondered how Nadi got such beautiful legends for all of her projects because legends are so much work to code um, in like D3 with SVG or Canvas. And I've always been so bad with legends because I'm so lazy at doing that. And then I read her write-ups and she was like, I use Illustrator. And I was like, <laughs> using, using the best tools for the job. What a mind-blowing concept. <laughs> That's Isn't right. it That's lovely, right. though, when you get, yeah, yeah, those sort of eureka moments. Yeah. Of why didn't I think of that sooner, right? Definitely. So I have a question that's a much longer conversation. We don't need to go to full depth, but I know I saw, I think it was Lisa brought up something here as well. But how do you think about color in your design? Naughty has a great answer, I feel like. <laughs> much uh, better color. than mine. <laughs> I was actually waiting for yours. Oh. So um, for color, so... Uh, Usually when I start out with the project, I turn everything rainbow because that's just more fun to look at than everything is black or gray. But then I start thinking about um, the topic, for example. What is So what is the what feeling do I get with the topic for astronomy-based topics? I'll, I'll probably start with a more dark th uh, theme. Do you seriously more... start with the rainbow colors? No, 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 no. I start with rainbow colors. Uh, you know, everything's just every color. That, that was my mind getting blown. <laughs> It's just more fun. I mean, it's I uh, I'm I don't always keep it that way. Sometimes in the right moments when it's, <laughs> but usually I switch to something else. So for astronomy, darker blues, lighter blues, and, and the purples and uh, um, and the pinks. Uh, whereas for um, the music project that's in the data sketches book that I created is very much. Um, uh, black and white to mimic that vinyl records. And then I made some of the circles look like tiny vinyl records. Uh, so and really thinking so about I, the theme and the topic and choosing a color palette that's going to match. Yeah. That. Yeah. To really make that, make that metaphor more easy for people to understand the topic that it's about and also sort of fitting it. Uh, but I also keep in mind sort of the, the design that I have created. So how many colors am I going to need a lot or only a few? Uh, and in what ways are our colors going to be in there? But that's really more of a case-by-case -case basis. And although I do have sort of color theory in the back of my mind and trying to find good color combos. So um, if, I, if I'm having difficulties, I will just create blocks in Affinity Designer and put them in the colors that I, and uh, the background color that I have in in mind, and then I start fine-tuning things. Mm, and right. for example, if I'm using one color a lot, I make that block very big, and then the other, Ooh. and I start then again uh, dragging the colors until I see them together. 
yes, to be able to see them together. And then at some point I will, you know, apply them to my visualization. And that's kind of an iterative process. And sometimes I can go a completely different direction uh, just to try something else. Do you have any tips? And so uh, Jung just commented, colors are so tricky because you almost need to have some artistic sensibility when it comes to choosing those. And uh, the comment is that most data viz workers have engineer with no art sort of life paths. So for someone who would look at themselves that way, do you have any really practical tips when it comes to color selection or resources? Mine is find a piece that you love that you think is sort of fits fits the visualization in some way and pick the colors from there. That's how I started. Ooh, yeah, I have uh, so many thoughts on this because actually like color is one of my biggest weaknesses of like theor- uh, like in theory, I understand, but like um, in practice, I think it's so hard. Um, and so over the years, uh, I've learned quite a few things, which I, I also want to say that uh, Nadi's starting with uh, rainbow, I think is actually a really good idea because um, so well, it depends on, um, I think, uh, one of the things I uh, first think about when I'm thinking about color is like the purpose of that color. Like, is it because I'm trying to visualize something that's categorical, and thus I need like, you know, very distinct hues? Or is it something that's more like quantitative and continuous? And so I just need like, maybe one or two set of colors. And, and especially I think the hardest like, because if you need something continuous, that's almost an easier job, because you choose one or two colors, and you adjust it's like, either vibrance, or it's uh, you know, um, luminosity, is that the same thing, Hold on. saturation or luminosity. And then you kind of you kind of go from there. Um, whereas like, I think categorical color palettes are so hard, because you need like distinct enough hues. And I and that's why I say that like, uh, naughty starting from rainbow, I think is such a good idea, actually, because then you naturally get a like, very distinct set of hues. And actually, I think um, one of the most beautiful things about Nadi's color palettes is that like she has like a very her own distinct style of a color palette where it's it's certainly the rainbow but then it's like also much more vibrant like I don't know like what you do with the saturation or like you know but like it's it, the color palette is very vibrant so when I first started freelancing like four years ago I knew that I was really weak in um, my colors so I think I was actually kind of inspired by Nadi's color palette. And I went and used this JavaScript library called Chroma. And I'm sure that other tools have something similar. Um, but Chroma is this like library for working with color. And one of the most like helpful functions for me is this uh, function called dot scale or just chroma.scale. Um, and what it does is you can put in any number of colors into that function, and it will interpolate between each of those colors and give you a color scale. And so what I did was I think I, um, when I first started, I chose maybe like, yeah, the seven colors of the rainbow and put it at a saturation and brightness I really liked, plugged it into chroma.scale. And then it I think I had to generate like 36 or 48 distinct colors that were like all, you know, between each of those like rainbows. And ever since for the last four and a half years, I've just been like picking out colors <laughs> from that palette, and then plugging it sometimes into chroma to like adjust, you know, some amount of its it, usually I just adjust the saturation, 
or I might pick like, you know, two colors, and then I might then plug it into the scale again. And another thing about the scale is you can tell it uh, how to interpolate between the two colors. So then um, if you tell it to interpolate like HSV versus like some other thing, it will interpolate it differently. So that's how, like the practical way of how I generate my color palettes. And because I start from that kind of um, basic same color palette every single time. That's how I have like a pretty uniform color palette for every single one of my projects and that kind of like distinct style. One last, that was very long. So one last practical advice is um, I always, always, after I choose a color palette that I quite like, I'll plug it into a tool from Susie Liu and Elijah Meeks called Viz Palette, because that one, they built it such that you can like kind of paste in a, uh, you know, a set of color strings, and then it will tell you if there's enough contrast between each of the colors for accessibility reasons. And they'll also give you the option to toggle between different color deficiencies and tell you if there's also good contrast for accessibility there too. That was my very long rant <laughs> about color. <laughs> and I just have to jump in because I just saw Catherine had posted, this is fascinating. I love how Cole was shocked at the rainbow as a starting point. <laughs> to me, it speaks to audience and how biased oh. business audiences are to typical blue, grays, oranges. She says, when I was doing data viz as a management consultant, I would try to sneak pink or purple into my visits and it made people so uncomfortable which is such an interesting point, right? That we can use color to, to shock or to get people's attention when we use it in a different way than they expect as well. Let's talk about one thing we haven't touched on yet. We talk about the project, we talk about the book, but how did the project become a book? And Ooh. I'm also curious as part of that, which is a whole discussion probably in and of itself. And I think Jennifer asked a question about this as well, but how do you take something that was definitely intended and created for online interactivity and print it in a book? So yes, it was part of it in a way. Um, because the the write-ups were already sort of the static thing where it was mostly screenshots in there. Yes, there were a few um, sort of videos in there that kind of show the progress. Uh, and for the bookification, uh, for the- um, Bookification, I haven't heard that before. <laughs> yeah, that's what we've been using. Uh, we kind of made sort of this tiny, like a few, um, a few scenes from that animation that might be happening and paste the images side by side. And we have this sort of, final screenshot section that is at the end of every write-up where we show big splash images of different um, modes of the visualization if it was interactive. Not all of them are as, as highly interactive as others, but we kind of give you the sense of um, how the project sort of looks. Uh, and of course, we put the link in the, in the book where you can really uh, experience the full visualization as it's intended. Uh, and in terms of how it turned into a book, well, that was, that was again, uh, more surely than me, uh, there was a uh, there was a pod, no, a video cast. I don't know how to call uh, by Alberto Caro and Simon uh, Rogers. And Alberto uh, was talking about data sketches, and this was just when it was sort of when we came out with it. It's like, hey, we have data sketches, uh, and he said, well, you know, I would love to see. Would have to have a, a coffee table book of this project on my on my table at some point. And then Shirley just grabbed onto that. It's like a book. We need to make a book. <laughs> How many projects had you completed together? How many months into it were four, you at this two point? Months. Two months. That's two months. Two months. <laughs> there were only four projects. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah. So uh, Shirley managed to 
talked me into that idea. <laughs> and then we started looking for uh, publishers uh, at that time in 2016. It was actually very hard for us to find a publisher that would take on this idea of like, we have this big fancy coffee table book, big, big images, colorful, but also technical. So it's also meant to really teach you something. Do you think, so once you hit the point of knowing you were going to do a book or anticipating that, did that change how you chose your projects or anything that you did along the course of the way, do you think? Nope. Not at all. Not mm-hmm. surely shaking nope. your head. No. Okay. All right. So you're four months in, you've done, or two to four months in, you've done these projects, you decide to make a book, now you're shopping for publishers. So I think actually we were about four months in and... It was, like Nadi said, it was really hard. No publisher wanted to do a combination of both. They wanted, like, either or. And it wasn't until I had... I was in Vancouver for some reason. Um, I can't... I don't actually remember why I was in Vancouver. But I met up with Tamara Munzner um, because she's based in Vancouver. And we just had this casual dinner together. And she was she, at that point, a professor at its uh, University of British Columbia? Yeah, she, uh, she, yeah, I think she's been there maybe, I, I guess, 10, 15 years. And she uh, wrote uh, a textbook called Visual Analysis and Design. Was that, I always get confused about the order of the words. Yes, I can see it on my bookshelf, Visual Analysis and Design. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and so we had dinner together. And uh, unbeknownst to me, apparently she was getting ready to pitch to me that data sketches should be a book and so she thought that she had like this uphill battle to convince me and uh and then as soon as she said it i was like yes we've been trying to do this <laughs> for months and nobody wants to do what we want to do and she's like what and, perfect and she, timing huh yeah and she was like kind of the perfect editor to champion our book because or champion the project because she had like such deep knowledge about the project she really liked it she shared it with her grad students in her classes and I think the reason why she was so great was because um, she loved the write-ups, the technical aspect of the write-ups just as much as we did. And so she was the one that was like, you know, we need to maintain this in the book. And also the book is important because she has been around the web uh, for like, you know, a long time. So she understands the concept of a project bit rotting. I love that term. And uh, no longer working on the web. So she's like, you need to archive not only the visual side of this, but also the technical write-ups. Um, and that's how we found kind of the perfect person to champion our book, as well as um, a publisher that was willing to go with the vision that we had. Because it's such an interesting combination, right? Because on the one hand, you do have the coffee table aspect of it's this ginormous book and it's beautiful, right? You can tell that, the, yeah, here Nadi's holding it up. The printing is beautiful. The colors are amazing. And so, and, and the, the full page bleed on everything. It's just, it's beautiful as you look through it. But then it's also got this deep process technical and you, you mentioned like there's not that much code I know as I flipped through it seemed like a lot of code but like <laughs> it's balanced so nicely with the the art side of it as well um who did you write it for who's the, who who is your ideal person who comes across it and adds it to their library and devours it Ooh, great question um so I think Uh, We both love um, having kind of like layers in our work. So with our visualizations, we'll, um, uh, and just like in our visualizations for our book, what we wanted to do was have it be accessible to a really wide 
uh, audience um, where we hoped that, um, you know, for it can attract uh, people that aren't familiar with data visualizations with those big beautiful images and it's color and it's full page. Um, and so it, it would entice them to flip through. Um, and then we, we were hoping that it can, you know, like attract uh, beginners into data visualization with the book, because then we go into a lot of detail about our thought process and like all of the steps in creating a full visualization. And we also try to um, give uh, like tips and tricks and lessons that we learned. And then finally, we're hoping that it could also entice like intermediate to like uh, advanced um, creators also, because again, we go into a lot of detail about um, like advanced, uh, um, I don't know the word, uh, like uh, well, I, process, I was scrolling I through and there was like, at one point there was, I think it was a two page spread on the trig that you used for one of your projects. <laughs> I think it was the travel one. Yeah, and SVG, SVG versus Canvas, uh, you know, custom animations, just all of the concepts behind it. So even if you have like the basics of D3 or basics of DataViz down, hopefully all of those kind of like more technical know-hows that we share would like take it to the, take your practice to the next level. So there've been a few questions that have come up on related, but slightly different bent and topic, which is on your roles as freelancers. Uh, I think both from the time from the standpoint of, you know, when you first started doing this as a side project, how did you find time for it? How do you decide when to make that jump to freelancer? What sort of challenges do you face there? Because I think for a lot of people who do data visualization as part of their work in a business setting, the idea of a data visualization freelance career can seem like this super shiny, beautiful thing. But I know there are challenges that go along with that as well. Can you just talk a little bit about your freelance experiences, which I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to make sure we at least touch on this. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so when we started data sketches, like uh, I mentioned, I was doing uh, dashboards with uh, D3, but I was kind of noticing that it wasn't quite um, fulfilling that creative side in me. Uh, so when I was it was therefore kind of sort of an outlet for me to be able to work on on data sketches in in my evenings and in a weekend. Uh, I don't know how I've I've completely sort of passed that phase where I'm able to do that. But at that point, I was so full of this sort of passion that I that I managed to do that. And when we had done two months of of data sketches, it was so clear to me that this was the type of data visualization that I love the most. Like I love data viz, but this was even better. Uh, so I was thinking about, well, this freelancing would be interesting to see if there's a, a market for more of this um, more creative side of DataVis, maybe this sort of uniquely made around one specific data set kind of DataVis. Uh, and then uh, it was, I think it was somewhere around October and Alberto Cairo reached out to us uh, and he was uh, an art director then to help uh, create pieces for Google News Lab. And he asked us, do you maybe want to do one project of data sketches together as a collaboration with Google News Lab? Uh, and then we'll pay you for it. And then I felt like, I don't want to say no to Google News Lab. And the only so way that I could like really take that on. So it seems like you had different series of stars aligning, right? Where yeah. you yeah. recognize you want to do something and the need for something. And then the right person is, yeah, the, yeah you've yeah, manifested yeah, your destiny, right? <laughs> Exactly. So I figured out the financial side. I'm very financially sort of, I was always very insecure, the idea of not getting a paycheck. 
I figured out I could last for six months uh, and then talk with my partners, like, we're going to do this. And so I started in January and, and by July, thankfully things had turned out well and I could actually pull this off. And it's been like the best decision I've ever made, even though it was a very frightening one. Yeah, similarly, I had started data sketches right after I have finished or I had started freelancing. And so I think the first six or seven months were really rough because I kind of went into it um, with the plan that if I could make it work in a year, then I would keep going. But if I couldn't, then I'll go back to a full time job. And so I had enough financial runaway there, but it was still very financially stressful. And so I think the first six or seven months, I it was not healthy because I was working around the clock, like literally the only breaks that I were I was taking, it was like, 30 minute lunches and dinners um, for like six or seven months do not recommend. Um, but it was I think that amount of work um, was I think what was necessary to really for me to have gotten to where I am now. And I think there's some things that were very intentional on both of our parts of um, the fact, for example, that data sketches were public, uh, public facing. Um, I think that, um, e you know, even by the time Alberta reached out, I think we had three or four published data sketches projects. Um, that were in our portfolio. And um, I was also very intentional with the first client projects I took that they were all public facing. And I turned down some that were going to pay me really well to do uh, internal work. Yeah. And can you talk about why? So the external facing the public stuff so that you'd be have evidence of your work that you could share with others? Was that the thought? Yeah, so I think um, I so I, I actually also studied business in university, and I think it was that business background um, that kind of helped me have the intuition that I needed to like set up a essentially a brand for myself to be able to. Um, and back in 2016, one of the things I learned was that it was still such a niche market that I cannot reach out um, that. Uh, if I cold call someone, they wouldn't have the budget for data visualization like that they might have for like design. And so the strategy had to be that I needed to put out as much of my work out there, establish my brand so that people would reach out to me instead because they liked my style or they liked my work. And even then, I think the first six months or so were really rough. And it wasn't until, like Nadi said, Alberto uh, reached out to us uh, for Google News Labs. And that almost changed my freelancing like overnight because before that project, people would hear my rate and they'd be like, mm, that's a little bit high. And then after I published the Google News Labs, people would be like, okay. And I had even raised my rate $50 <laughs> per hour. And so it was like, nothing about me or my skills have changed. But that big name, nah, but the really credibility you got with, yeah. yeah, and that's I think by then I think that's what really solidified the freelancing for me personally. So there is so much more <laughs> we could talk about, and I know we haven't hit every question that came in, but we're almost up on the hour, uh, which has flown by. This has been hugely fun. But before we wrap, um, where do you look for inspiration? Because I'm curious, right? Because I imagine you you have ideas that that strike you clearly, but I have to imagine you you look places intentionally to spark that creativity at times. Or correct me if that's not the case, but I'm curious if there's anything from your process of project conceptualization or just yeah, where you look for creativity that may help inspire some of the rest of us too. 
I think that the idea that inspiration will sort of spark you out of nothing is for me totally not true. I really have to look at things and be inspired by what I see at that time and really take the time and sit down to be inspired. To do this, I have Pinterest boards. So everything I see online that interests me in any way, any kind of visual way, uh, either database or other uh, topics that I find interesting, such as space related things or um, historic sky maps, whatever. Uh, and when I start on a new project, I will kind of go through some of these boards and create a secret client mood board uh, for everything that kind of seems to stick, even though I'm not quite sure yet. And I, I gather it all up. And then when I start designing and thinking about things, I, I have this on my screen. Uh, so I'm I'm inspired more a lot by what comes online, uh, what comes by online. And what has just been recently, you know, what I've been seeing in the world around me. And for me, I think from a project conception, like topics, um, I think I've always been a very curious child and that has like gone into adulthood. And so for me, a lot of the topic inspirations are just from my day to day life, observing like things around me being like, huh, I wonder why it's that way. Um, and then that's what would spark uh, a uh, inspiration or spark a particular interest in a topic. And then I'll go out and find the data set for it. And from a visual inspiration perspective, I think it's very similar to Nadi in that um, I just try to keep an eye out a lot for things that I find beautiful. But I do try not to look at other people's data visualizations too much because I, I I think to have my own distinct style um I can't like I get too easily influenced by others and so I take a lot of inspiration from nature from like going to like art museums and um uh, and other fields that are like tangentially related but not data visualization and then once in a while I'll peek back at other people's data viz to be like oh that's a really interesting technique or um to like kind of catalog but not all the time great tips and ideas. I love it. So as we move to close, I'll just mention that folks who are interested in learning more about Shirley and Nadi and the new book, you can check out their book website, which is at datasketch.es, which is a brilliant uh, URL. Uh, you can find more out about Nadi and her work at visualcinnamon.com. And Shirley is at shirleywoo.studio. Ladies, do you have any final thoughts to share with us today? I actually want to share that even though we're in a pandemic right now, we did manage to create signed copies, a limited amount of signed copies. And there is a, a special form that you need to sign into. And we have a 20% discount code. And we'll be tweeting that out on the at data sketches Twitter really soon. So if you want a copy, I definitely recommend to get one through there. Yeah. And then please follow us on Twitter. And uh, we also have a newsletter for data sketches, where we'll keep you updated on all of the book related media, PR things, interviews that but not <laughs> we too have often. going on. No, newsletters are like once every month or so. But Twitter will keep you up to date with everybody, everything that's going on, including uh, this podcast. Fantastic. So Shirley, Nadi, it has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank, Thank you, you so again much. for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so yeah, fun. And congratulations again. And I'll just say uh, as a final reminder to those watching and listening, be sure to check out their new book, Data Sketches. And thanks very much for tuning in.